0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your non-managers and individual contributors, please check out this year's newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Teammate. In this 12-month program, I'll be taking your employees through this program, which includes topics on communication, managing your boss, getting results without authority, customer service, problem-solving, decision-making, and much more. The sessions are virtual running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoints, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take the program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. You know, we are living in unprecedented times right now. It is the second week of March 2022, and we are still in the middle of recovering from a pandemic. We have a potential World War III happening over in Ukraine right now. And on top of all of this, companies are still struggling for talent. We're still trying to find our way through this great recession, companies refocusing their efforts. And so sometimes you almost got to go old school to learn how to solve today's problems. So that's what we're gonna do in this episode. Our guest today is Robert Colehip, and he is the former CEO of Cintas Corporation, and he has just written a book called Building a Better Organization. Bob and I had a great talk, and I love speaking with him because he has forgotten more about the business world than most of us will ever learn. Bob shares his journey of how he was selected to be able to be groomed to take over this company, the lessons he learned along the way, the initiatives that they put together, their hiring process and you know the best part is some of those things that they did decades ago are relevant today and sometimes when you have new school problems you have to go old school to be able to solve them. You're going to enjoy this conversation. I could have talked to him all day just a fountain of knowledge. Today Bob mentors young leaders and promotes this book So why don't we let him do the talking? You know what time it is. Let's make sure that personal item's under the seat in front of you. Make sure your seatbelt is buckled low and across your hips. It's time for us to take off.
1: Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen podcast. The show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed and underappreciated HR professional. And now here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe.
0: Robert Kolhepp, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Mac. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that we could do this talk. You are the author of the book, Building a Better Organization, and Before we went on the air live, we talked a little bit about the signs of the times that there is a problem with supply and demand. And it's not just in the auto industry and with toilet paper, it's really this battle for employees now. And so the audience, of course, we reach out to our HR professionals. And I know one of their pain points is that we've got open positions, we have no one to fill them. And on top of that, we're losing people. You argue that that's a problem that's fixable. And so what I'd like to do is talk to you about that today but before we do, I'd like you to share your background with us, because you're just not somebody who started this in the last couple of years. This has been a life's work for you. So tell us about your background.
2: OK, uh, I started in public accounting in 1964, was a practicing CPA for about three years. And one day my phone rang and was the founder of Centos calling, asking me if I would be interested in coming to work for him. Uh, I told him I was very happy where I was, and I hung up the phone, but he's a very, he was a very persistent man. He kept calling back, and we ultimately got together. I joined the company in 1967 as controller. Uh, I was in that position for a couple of years. Uh, then I became the general manager of the company that the founder built, and he went out of Cincinnati to build uh, another location. Um, then I became a vice president and treasurer. Then I became a, a president and chief operating officer then CEO, then vice chairman, and retired in 2016 as chairman. I spent just short of 50 years with CentOS. It's a wonderful experience. When I started, we had uh, sales of a, a million six and 62 employees. Today, we have sales of 8 billion and 42,000 employees. And uh, not to suggest that I was the only person that did that. It took a lot of people to do that. But I was an integral part of it, and it was a great experience, and I learned a lot
0: along the way. Now, is the company that, it's uh, work uniforms, right?
2: Provides work uniforms, uh, ancillary products to work uniforms like entrance mats, shop towels, things like that, restroom products. It has a division now in the fire service business, and it has a division we call the first aid and safety business. So it's, it's a, an array of business services.
0: Okay. Yeah. I see their trucks quite often cruising around and I would assume that's probably where they're heading to different places like that for deliveries and whatnot. How did the CEO find you way back then? And, and basically browbeat you into joining the organization. What was your relationship like?
2: It was a great relationship. I think uh, in, in your life, there are probably just a, a handful of people that you can have the relationship with where you completely trust them. You're you're able to tell them anything that's going on in your business, in your life. And and, uh, that's the relationship I had with Dick Farmer. Uh, The way he attracted me to the company was he had a vision back when we were one small little company in Cincinnati, Ohio, to build a national company. And he told me if I helped him accomplish that vision, he would make sure I was well taken care of. And I did help him and I was well taken care of. Um, and so that that vision, that excitement, that uh, enthusiasm that he had is what drew me to, to him and to the company. I didn't join the company because of the company. I joined the company because of him.
0: So how did he find you? You know, today we would say, you know, oh, so, you know, there's Bob Kohlhepp on LinkedIn. Let me uh, connect with him and see if he might be interested in you know, getting a job. How did it happen back then? Because 67, that was a long time ago. Yeah.
2: Well, Dick was very frustrated because he was hiring people from within the industry and he would constantly outgrow them. Most of them did not have college degrees and he went to, he sought some advice. And the advice he got was he needed to start hiring young college graduates who could grow with the business. And I was the first, then he called his banker and his lawyer and his, his CPA and insurance guy and et cetera. And he said, be on the lookout for, uh, someone who you think, uh, would fit that mold. And coincidentally, uh, as a CPA, he, uh, myself and, and his attorney, he had several mutual clients and I met the attorney and evidently said a few things that impressed him. So he called Dick and he said, hey, you got to meet this young guy. And uh, that's how he found me.
0: That's amazing because, you know, we always hear that networking is the key to finding a job, but that's not a new trend. 1967 was, you know, 50 plus years ago. It's amazing the word of mouth. Do you think that it was Harder then to have your work noticed to be able to be connected to opportunities than it is today?
2: No, I really don't think so. Uh,
0: I, I think that uh, uh,
2: one thing I would tell you is that uh, we would rarely hire somebody who did not have a job. Uh, we, were all, we, were, we were looking for somebody who wasn't looking for a job. And that's what Dick Farmer found in me. Uh, because those kinds of people usually are pretty good at what they do. Uh, Too often, people don't have a job, weren't very good at what they did. And that's why they don't have a job anymore. Uh, People that are good and and perform and achieve results are highly sought after. And they usually aren't sitting around answering ads.
0: (laughs) Makes sense. Back when we used to answer ads in the paper in places like that. Showing my age. (laughs) Well, mine as well. I used to scour those too when I got out of the Navy. Like, you know, the internet wasn't a thing until Monster came. And then, you know, Monster itself was a monster. And of course, it's changed. So when you began your work there, at what point in that tenure did Mr. Farmer really identify you as someone that he was going to essentially mentor and bring in? How long did it take to get to that point?
2: Well, it's hard for me to say unfortunately he's not with us anymore. He passed away last summer. You'd almost have to ask him. But I would say probably after I was there, maybe five years, he realized that I could, I accomplished everything he asked me to accomplish and usually more uh that I always had my hand up asking for more responsibility uh i uh, uh you know had the intelligence to grow with the company and so i was my guess would be somewhere around five years
0: okay and in that time did you work very, real close to him was it in the same building what we, was the proximity it
2: was right down the hall from me i mean we had a company at the time did a million six a small little company 62 employees we were all in the same building there was only one building Uh, Mm -hmm. so yeah, we work extremely closely together and he, he was just a wonderful mentor. I learned so much from him about marketing, about people, uh, about uh, managing people and motivating people. He was a great motivator. He was tough as nails, had high expectations, always pushed me. He was sort of the guy, no matter what you did, it wasn't good enough kind of guy, but, uh. At the same time he uh, recognized that I was getting the job done and that uh, I sort of stood out among all the people that he had. And that's how I ended up with uh, becoming CEO.
0: Now, when he identified you as his replacement, how long of a period was it before you actually took control of the wheel?
2: Well, I became president and chief operating officer in 1984. I became CEO in
0: 1995.
2: Uh, So I guess, uh, He sort of, uh, but really back in, in after I was with the company for about three years, he had built a company in Cincinnati, decided we wanted to expand out of Cincinnati. So at the ripe old age of about 25 years old, he walked into my office one day, and said, I want you to run the company. I'm going to Cleveland to build another company. Uh, And uh, uh, I talked to him almost every night on the telephone. He gave me a lot of coaching and a lot of advice, and a lot of input along the way but it really after 3 years he he took what his life's work or 10 years of his life's work and let me run it uh, because that's how much confidence he had in me and i made every mistake there is to make in the book but i learned from those mistakes i mean i've always said the only people who don't make mistakes are people who don't do anything the people that work you got to worry about it, are the people who make the same mistakes over and over and over again you got to worry about those but you learn from mistakes you learn from trying things yeah, but I had a wonderful mentor and Dick, uh, uh, just a wonderful guy, and I lost my very best friend l- last year uh, and uh, visited with him even after I retired many, many, many times.
0: When you took over the role then, how, did your style mirror his or how did you become the new CEO without just being a carbon copy of your mentor? Because I, I don't know if that happened or not, but I'm sure you had your own style. How did that go? Was it drastically different?
2: Uh, it wasn't drastically different because I uh, might say he rubbed off on me. Uh, but Dick was uh, Dick's strengths were marketing people. My strengths were financial because I came from a financial background. And I became a lot more like him. He became a little bit more like me. And in fact, when I'd answer the phone, some people thought I sounded even like him. Uh, so... Uh, uh, you know, we became a lot like each other. I remember when I became CEO and really had total control of the entire organization at that time. I got a, a call from the local newspaper and one of the questions they asked me was, uh, now that you're the new CEO, what are you going to do different than Mr. Farmer? Because Dick, Dick had an incredible reputation on in building a company up to that size. Uh, and I said, I'm not going to do anything different. Uh, this is a relay race. He just gave me the baton and I'm going to try to run a little faster than he ran uh, because it was working. Why change something when it's working? But uh, Dick was uh, a little different personality. He was more, I would say, more creative than I was. Uh, He had a tendency sometimes to jump from one thing to the other. Whereas with my accounting background, I was much more analytical, you might say. But again, I became a lot like him and he became a little bit like me And so we complimented each other uh, a great deal.
0: Well, your analogy of passing the baton, I love that analogy. When you took over, how often were you in touch with Dick as you started to really find your own voice and and start asserting your own sort of control over things?
2: Oh, several times a week, only because I had such great respect for his judgment and his input. It wasn't that I needed to get a hold of him. But if I was faced with something, I would say to myself, well, here's what I think I need to do. And frequently, if it was of any significance, I would run it by him because I respected his opinion. Uh, he didn't get my hair. He wasn't uh, second-guessing me or going around me at all. But uh, I consulted with him a lot uh, about a lot of things because he was a smart, smart guy. And I, I respected his judgment.
0: So when it came time for your transition, how how long before you actually went ahead and retired Did you identify your successor and did you have a similar sort of structure in how you transition for the next pass of the baton? Yeah, I did.
2: uh, Coincidentally, it was Dick Farmer's son who was my successor. And uh, Dick never wanted his son to work directly for him Mm -hmm. uh, because he felt like as a father, sometimes the father's expectations of their own son is well above anybody else, number one. And number two, he wanted to be sure that, uh, that uh, Scott was treated uh, uh, like any other person would be treated. And a father and son maybe don't work as well together as a non-father and son. Uh, Dick made it very clear to me that if I chose someone other than Scott to succeed me, he would be fine with that. So there was no expectation that he was gonna succeed me. But yes, yeah, Scott and I worked extremely closely together. Uh, I, I taught him everything I knew. Uh, in fact, when I finally, uh, uh retired the board asked me to stay on the board for another two years. And I declined because I said, look, uh, Scott's been in his father's shadow and in my shadow for far too many years. It's time for him to be the man. And if I hang around here for another two years, he won't be the man. And so I, I told, I declined the board's offer, although I thought it was very gratifying that they would ask me to stay on the board. Uh, and, but Scott and I worked extremely well together. I mentor him just as he mentored Scott, uh, uh, Dick mentored me, and uh, and I think he had the same mindset about taking the baton from me as opposed to trying to change things the way I did things because we had a very distinct culture in our company, and it was the culture that drove our company more than the individuals. Um, and so uh, that culture, it was the same today as it was 60 years ago.
0: How would you describe that culture? Because a culture is pretty much locked in, whether it's bad or good. It's very hard to change. Uh, what was it like?
2: Well, our culture was made up of three things. Our principal objective, which was to maximize the long-term value of CentOS for our shareholders and working partners by exceeding our customers' expectations. That one sentence drove every decision we made. Every time we were thinking about buying a company, building a new plant, hiring someone, we would always always ask our quest- that question, will this? exceed our customers expectations and maximize the long-term value of CentOS for our shareholders and for our working employees. The second part of our culture was uh, a bunch of adjectives and phrases that, that described our character, what it was like to work at CentOS. We were professional, we worked hard, we had a, a great respect for our people, our employees who we call partners. Uh, we listened to them, we sought their input. Uh, we had we, we revered our customers. We would do anything to satisfy a customer because we recognize that the customer is paying for everything. Uh, we were thorough. Uh, we so we had a lot of the adjectives and phrases to describe. Here's the way we function, and and so forth. And the third part of our culture was what we called our management system, a system where we would put uh, commit to writing the solution to recurring problems, so that the experience and knowledge of the people that went before us could be utilized in in, in making decisions and deciding how to handle a particular situation. Those three things made up our culture. We wrote books about it. We taught courses about it. Uh, we, We lived it every day, which is the hard part because you see so many companies, they have these beautiful statements in their annual report. The problem is they don't live it every day, starting with the CEO of the company. And, uh, you know, Enron is a perfect example. They had a wonderful statement in their annual report before they went down and they were lying and stealing and cheating and, and uh, doing a bunch of things they shouldn't be doing because they didn't live it every day. Uh, <clears throat> so this culture was really alive in our company. And the other thing we did, uh, Mac, was that when we would interview someone for a new position, and this gets back to your original point about keeping people. We would, first of all, interview them from the standpoint of, does this person have the qualifications to do the job? But the second part of the interview, which was equally as long as the first, is this person going to be compatible with our organization? Because if they're not compatible, they wouldn't be happy. We wouldn't be happy. And I think one of the reasons why uh, uh, people, the turnover rate is so high, is that people don't do a good enough job of hiring We developed a program we called meticulous hiring. I have a whole chapter almost in my book about it. And and meticulous hiring was identifying people who are capable of doing the job and are compatible with your organization. That takes thorough, thorough interviewing and and thorough, thorough reference checking. And I get into a lot of detail about that in my book. And I think today, because people are so hard to find, the risk of compromising on a hire is much higher today than it was in the past because too often people just hire a warm body it's the worst thing in the world you can do uh we did study on turnover and found that the number one reason why we had turnover was we shouldn't have hired him in the first place and that's what that's why we created this meticulous hiring program we were extremely thorough in hiring
0: so you you did your corporate career you then handed the baton off you decided not to stay on as part of the board So what was your plan when you made this? Because you seem like a pretty thoughtful guy. I would think you probably had something in mind. So what was your intention once you went ahead and retired?
2: Well, I was 73 when I retired. Uh, And so my intention was that, uh, you know, I worked very hard 60, 70, 80 hour weeks every single week. Uh, There were times when I missed a lot of uh, baseball games and basketball games and soccer games that my kids were playing. Uh, We had a policy. Uh, and we made an exception with Scott Farmer, we had a policy that officers' children could not come to work for the company for risk, for fear that someone get promoted because they were the officer's son or daughter. Uh, so my children didn't have the wonderful opportunity that I had and learn what I had. So I have dedicated a good deal of my time since 73 and retiring in 2016, since I turned 73, to imparting the knowledge and the experience that I've been able to accumulate over the years to my children.
0: So was that the inspiration then for the book? Because it sounds like everything was documented at Cintas and including, you know, all the things you learn about hiring. Well, is that what built the book that you have now? No, uh, I I did a lot of teaching at Cintas. I've done teaching at a
2: local university in Cincinnati. And uh, every time I would teach, I'd have people walk up to me afterwards and say, you should write a book. Because they were so impressed with what they learned in in the in the talk, um, and I'm all I I never pulled the trigger to write that book because uh, I saw our founder Dick Farmer he wrote a book called Rags to Riches, and I saw the agonizing time and effort that he put into writing that book because if you're going to write a good book, as you well know, uh, you better put a lot of time in it or it's not going to be a good book, um, and so uh, I had that input over the years. And, uh, I was on, I was on the board and still am on the board of a private equity company. And we invested in a company where I was on the board of the company we invested in and actually mentored someone who became the new CEO of that company. And, uh, the, the fellow who runs the private equity company sent me a, uh, uh, a a book one day called trillion dollar coach. And it was written by a guy about a guy named Bill Campbell who mentored a number of people in, in Silicon Valley, including Steve Jobs. And I really loved the way they, and it was written. He wouldn't write the book. He was too humble to write the book. He passed away. But three of the people he mentored wrote the book. And I read that book in, in, in a night and a half and uh, was so impressed by the book and the, the way it was organized. And I thought to myself, you know, I gotta do this. I have all this knowledge. I've had all this wonderful experience. I should not take it to my grave. I should try to put it out there so that other people who have met dealing with some of the same challenges that I dealt with in my career uh, can learn from what I did. So it wasn't for my children. It was for anybody who's managing people or running a company or even a department. And I think it would be helpful to them.
0: Well, I guess it seems like you had like almost a, a university on a daily basis to learn things from Dick Farmer. And I don't know if a lot of people have that opportunity anymore. I think longevity, you don't quite see it as often as you used to see it. So this book is essentially sort of not Dick Farmer in a box. It's, you know, Bob Kohlhepp in a box. But who is the intended audience for that book? The intended audience is anyone who manages people, anyone,
2: it could be a department, it could be a division, it could be a plant, uh, it could be a nonprofit. Uh, Anyone who has to organize and manage people, I think the book would be very
0: helpful to them. Great. Well, the topic we really want to work on, and you've mentioned the culture and the the three tenets of that culture. We've got organizations today that don't have time to think about, oh, let's create a culture. We are basically in a sinking raft and people keep throwing big blocks of cinder blocks in there on top of us. They're draining talent and not able to find it. And so what would you recommend? What strategy should somebody take to alleviate the turnover and then be able to attract good fits? I mean, you had a very long interview process at CentOS where you would have the skill part and then the fit part. Is that still relevant today? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we have, if you came, if you tried to get a job
2: with our company, you would go to a minimum of six and maybe as many as 10 different people that would interview you. Those people, after they interview you get together and compare notes. You'd be surprised how many times people will answer the same question a different way to a different person. Um, so it's extremely thorough. We do extremely thorough reference checking. So I would say one of the things you need to do with new people is meticulously hire them. Don't ever hire anybody you're lukewarm about. Don't ever hire anybody that one of the people that interviewed him was sort of so-so about them. Uh, because my experience is, When you hired somebody you were really excited about, you thought you'd almost hired the good Lord, you're gonna be wrong 25% of the time. When you hire somebody you're lukewarm about, you're wrong every single time. And the reason that happens is, it's time consuming to interview people. It's time consuming to thoroughly check references. You got a full time job, you're doing it at night on Saturdays. And so you wanna get the job filled. And that tendency to get the job filled causes you to compromise. Don't do that. You cannot compromise in hiring people. You have to hire the right people. But once you have people working for you, you have to take care of them. You have to give them good feedback. You have to pat them on the back when they do something right. You have to acknowledge their success. You have to pay them competitively. And the ones that are really good, you got to pay them more than competitively. You got to fight like crazy when somebody quits. I would tell you that maybe one out of five person Persons who came in and resigned from our company, we talked out of leaving uh, because we we put a full court press on them. We'd had nine different people talk to them. We'd study where they were going and try to point out some of the things they they better be careful about. I mean, all the debt this company over here has, you ever thought about that? You realize that this could happen and that could happen. And so you got to, and, and then if we did lose them, we would let them know on the way out the door hey, if it doesn't work out over there, the door's open. We love you. We think you did a great job for, for us. You fit in very, very well here. So if you get over there and found out, find out the grass isn't greener on the other side, you got our number. And we'd even call them six months later. How's it going over there? Because people, you know, people are your greatest asset. That phrase is used a lot. Very few people treat them. Very few companies and managers treat their people like they're the greatest asset. And so the people who worked for me knew me well. They could talk to me. I, I made it easy for them to talk to me. I wanted, I solicited their input. I made them feel like they were helping us run the company. I wasn't a commander. I, w- I was a leader. There's a difference. You know, in, in the military, you can command people. You can't do that in business because they can quit. They can't quit in the military. Uh, and so I think if you do all those things and you have your people have a feeling of belonging, they work at a place where the values are compatible with their values. It's very hard to get them to leave.
0: When people left, was there a, a pattern of why they were leaving, or was it for just various other reasons that you could kind of observe? In most cases,
2: it was money. Somebody was having 50% of their salary. Uh, that okay. would be far by far the number one reason. We didn't lose people very often that we didn't mm-hmm. want to lose.
0: So yesterday I read or the other day that Home Depot has a new policy now where they are going to interview you on day one and you will be hired and working on day two. That to get around this frantic war for talent right now. What is your response to the HR professional today that says, hey, Bob, great idea. You know That might have worked back in the 70s, but today we've got hardly any talent to pick from. We're like that car dealer today. If we did 10 rounds of interviews and compared notes, these people would have selected a job somewhere else. How do you respond to that?
2: Well, I'd say it's bunk. Uh, I I would say we didn't string out these interviews over long periods of time. We were very sensitive to, uh, uh, you know, making sure that a person, we were prompt in getting back to them to reach a conclusion. So it wouldn't take us weeks and weeks and weeks to make up our mind on somebody. But if you shortcut that hiring process, guess what you're going to be hiring again real soon i I would i would say i would say bs that's what i'd say to that
0: yeah and i think that's our challenge and i've had that conversation with a few you know you say you're short-handed are you short-handed enough to deal with someone who's a pain in the ass and you know then well you know we got to take whatever we can get now you talked earlier we talked offline about the pendulum swinging when it came to car dealerships so i suspect now eventually we're going to come back to the middle where now there's a better balance and I think that's where the real win is going to be because those we've hired and done the due diligence on now, that's our foundation. Mm-hmm. And now we can build on that. Is that sound about right? Did I get that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh,
2: you know, it, the pendulum will swing. I don't know how long it will be. I mean, supposedly there's 11 million jobs out there and, and only about 6 million people looking for them, if that many, uh, but, uh, yeah, it'll, and, and you know, I think the higher up in the organization you go, the more thorough and more elongated the interview process has to be, particularly at the management level. Uh, that's not to say it shouldn't be at the hourly level. And give you an example. We, we study, you, you need to study your turnover to understand why do you have turnover. And we got very granular, granular uh, with it. Uh, for example, in a plant, we found out that anybody who was making $14, $15 an hour, if they took a job that was more than 30 minutes from their house, they would take the job while they're looking for another job that's closer, particularly in a large city with traffic and, and so forth. Why? Because if you think about it, if you're 45 minutes from your job, you blow an hour and a half every day getting there and getting back home. And if you're making $14, $15 an hour, it's not worth it to you. So you'll take the job that's an hour away you'll keep looking for something closer so we we would have a must-have and a preferred for every job a must-have is they have to live within 30 minutes of the plant a preferred was they live within 15 minutes of the plant and we would have a whole list of must-haves and preferreds never would we compromise on a must-have never
0: well i think that as soon as you start compromising on that you'd lower your standards and before you know it you got a culture of mediocrity, I guess.
2: That, or you have turnover like crazy and you're spending all your time hiring people because all you're trying to do is fog a mirror. If the guy's driving a truck, we used to say, don't hire somebody just to fog the mirror.
0: <laughs> so these days, you, uh, you've, you've recently written a book, you're uh, doing some podcasts and things. What does your daily routine look like these days?
2: Well, I don't work 80 hours a week anymore, I will tell you that. I'm on three boards. That takes some of my time. Uh, I have three children, the seven grandchildren that takes some of my time. I'm playing a little more golf than I played back when I was working so hard. Uh, but, uh, that, and, and so, and I, I will tell you, I have a lot of people, both at CentOS and other people who I've mentored and helped in, in life. And I, I get three, four calls almost a week from people say, Hey, I got this problem, Bob, what do you think about this? And I, I'm pleased to take the time to do it because, uh, I enjoy doing it. I love business. Uh, business is the last bastion of survival of the fittest. And that's what I love about it. Because if you aren't taking care of your customers, you're going to go broke. And if you aren't taking care of the people who work for you, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And so anybody I can help with that kind of thing, I'm happy to do so.
0: Great. Well, on that note, Bob, how can our listeners who are probably struggling with many of the challenges you've overcome in the past, how can they reach out to you for training, help, and how do they get a copy of that book?
2: Well, I have a website called Uh, On that website, I have all my podcasts, the number of articles I've written. You can order my book through that website. Uh, it's also available on barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. I would say you start by reading my book because uh, most of what I would tell you uh, on the phone from somebody I don't know well or it's not a specific issue uh, is in my book. If you read my book, I think you'll get a lot of ideas Uh, I had somebody the other day told me they they had their highlighter out and they almost ran out of yellow ink because they were highlighting so many things in the book. The book is not that long. It's about 150 pages. It's an easy read. You can read it in a few nights, Uh, but I think you get a lot of great knowledge out of that book. That's where I would start. Excellent.
0: The book is Building a Better Organization by Robert Kohlhepp. Bob, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to share the information with us. And if you're listening today, I would encourage you to reach out You definitely need help these are unprecedented times for most of us but for someone like bob probably just another day at the office bob thank you so much for spending time with us today you're welcome Mac, and thanks so much for having me well thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the hr oxygen podcast i hope you enjoy listening to these as much as i enjoy making them i've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm credit webinar that we present, as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs, More information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, you may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.